Hello and welcome to Unorthodoxy. My name is Duncan Rayburn and in this episode I want to start a three-part series dealing with the fascinating relationship between faith and self-deception. This is a really interesting subject for me because it raises questions that have psychological and philosophical importance and obviously by implication also a great deal of theological importance. The fact that faith and self-deception seem to be somewhat intertwined shouldn't really surprise you. It's probably one of the primary arguments used against people of some faith to say that, well, they're just self-deceived because, you know, of all those weird miracles and that stuff about demons and angels and, you know, the incarnation. Modernist biases aside, maybe the relationship between faith and self-deception is more complicated than the average contemporary mind has taken the trouble to ponder. Actually, that's exactly what I'm claiming here. The relationship between faith and self-deception is complicated. In fact, as I hope to demonstrate, while faith may be the thing that can cause us to be self-deceived, of course it, it can, it may also just be the thing that rescues us from self-deception. So think about this for a second. Do you think you're an above-average driver? This would be a particularly interesting question if you happen to be driving right now. I've posed this question to my students and various other audiences I've spoken to, and the number of hands that go up is pretty overwhelmingly on the side of the affirmative. Yes, most people seem to think that they're above average when it comes to driving, and maybe you're one of them. That's probably what you were thinking, right? But what evidence do you have for this? That is, if this happened to be your, your assumption, do you have any proof you have your subjectivity, of course, and the fact that you've only caused three accidents in the last three weeks, and they weren't all your fault, or something. Chances are pretty good that we're all in the process of deceiving ourselves about something right now. That's a, a crazy thing to even say, but it seems like the, there is evidence that leans that way. We're all probably in the process of deceiving ourselves about something right now. But the dilemma is that with self-deception... We're not going to be aware of how we might be deceiving ourselves, which is precisely why we mostly don't go around admitting that we're self-deceived. There's something of ideological stupefaction going on here. We, we don't know what we're doing, quite literally. <laughs> Self-deception is a huge topic. It's, it's covered in a range of fields, evolutionary biology, anthropology, psychology, psychoanalysis, philosophy, theology, rhetorical studies, and probably a few others. So, in keeping with my usual disclaimer, whatever I say here is going to be incomplete, but I think I'm going to be able to cover enough ground to at least give you a concrete way to navigate the subject, and especially to figure out what it means for you and the world you live in, and for how you interpret what faith is supposed to do. As I've already hinted, my main focus is on what self-deception might tell us about faith, but also, obviously, what faith might tell us about self-deception. Faith in this picture will turn out to be something like what the ancient Greeks referred to as a pharmacon, something that is somehow both a poison and a cure. In this episode, I have two main goals. The first is I want to just look at some examples, and then I want to look at a definition of self-deception, which will unpack some of the kind of core uh, reasons why we self-deceive ourselves. And then in the final episode in the series, I'm going to be looking at five hermeneutical force fields that we're all in some way 
bound to. Um, while inherently useful as ways to navigate these, the world, um, these hermeneutical force fields actually also have tremendous potential to trip us up. Chances are pretty good that this series may at times be an exercise in deconstruction, but my intention here is not to completely destabilize your sense of self or reality or even your faith. My usual modus operandi is at work here, which is that I just want to set up a new way of, of seeing, a, a new way of being aware in the world, which I think is a good thing, right? So with all of this in mind, let's get into some examples. These are mostly from Greg Ten Elsoff's book on self-deception, which has the wonderful title, I Told Me So. One survey done, I can't remember where, showed that 94% of academics regard themselves as above average as both teachers and researchers. This is like the above average driver example I mentioned a few moments ago. Of course, the irony of this survey should be obvious. How can most people be above average? It doesn't really work. From my own involvement in academia, the opposite has also seemed to me to be true. I've met many academics with so-called imposter syndrome. These really, truly amazing, profound thinkers regard themselves as below average, even when there is very strong evidence to the contrary. The same point applies to both. How people see their abilities and what they're really capable of are not necessarily going to be aligned. Then in another study, 80% of high school students placed themselves in the top half with regard to leadership ability. And another survey suggested that 25% of college students believe that they're in the top 1% in terms of their ability to get along with others. So I guess that indicates that a lot of people are, are creating enemies and having no idea that that's what they're doing. So it turns out also that, that most people believe that they're in the top 70% when it comes to being good-looking. I mean, obviously you out there, you really are good-looking, so you have nothing to worry about. But some people are just clearly deluded. Not you, of course. Or me, we hope. It turns out also that almost 100% of people who listen to this information on this podcast will take it at face value simply because it has a statistical appearance even though I've made some of this information up. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm kidding. You, you, can, you can trust it. Or can you? I'm not sure. Anyway, <laughs> a study done at Princeton revealed that most people think that they are less biased than the average person. Also, most people will believe something just because someone with a PhD said that a so-called study was done at a prestigious university like Princeton. It may be true, but the reasons for believing the truth may have very little to do with the truth of it. Maybe faith is involved. Okay, one last example. In a poll conducted by the American Revolution Center, 89% of adults polled believed that they could pass a basic test on the American Revolution. However, 83% of people who took the test failed. Now, the typical reaction to this information might be that, well, of course some people are naturally more prone to be self-deceived, but I'm not one of those people. Unfortunately, this kind of reaction would, in all likelihood, just be another example of self-deception. The truth is, we are all prone to being self-deceived. No one is exempt. All have been self-deceived by themselves and fallen short of the glory. Whatever you make of what I share here, it would certainly not make sense to come away from it thinking, 
that you'll be totally cured of your self-deceptive tendencies. It would also not be advisable to finish listening to this and start pointing fingers at others or only at others for being self-deceived. Sure, it's, it's a helpful thing to look at existential and ideological loopholes which exist everywhere, but this subject matter is best suited, I think, for self-reflection and self-diagnosis. In the examples I've just mentioned, one thing is common, and it'll help us to define precisely what self-deception is. The common thing is that there is a disjunction in self-deception or a disconnection between perception and reality. This is really at the heart of all self-deception. You could say that we are self-deceived when what we perceive to be real or true and what is actually real or true are two different things. Put more harshly, perhaps, or in more exaggerated terms, you could say that in self-deception our so-called reality is in fact a fantasy or a construct or an invention. In other words, there would be a gap between perception or subjectivity and reality, that would be, say, objectivity. This, I think, is the era of, of much social constructivist theory and quite a lot of, but obviously not all, postmodern theory. These may tend to use conceptual configurations as being in some way more absolute or more central than material conditions or, say, phenomenological ontology. Of course, even two minutes of thought would show us that there is always a gap between perception and reality in some respects, but in self-deception the gap is, let's say, much bigger than usual. Also, there is some unconscious attempt at play in self-deception to keep the gap in place, whereas in, say, the pursuit of truth there would be a, a kind of intentional movement towards ensuring that perception and reality are in harmony in some way. This is actually what makes self-deception so tricky. There's a kind of self-sabotage at work that will insist on keeping perception and reality from entering into a kind of productive dialogue. Typically, we would think of perception and reality as being in dialogue, but in self-deception, perception doesn't really want to converse with reality, or perception is in some ways deaf to reality. The implication of this is that, in a sense, self-deception makes the matrix uh, real, <laughs> where, which is kind of weird, um, weird thing to say, where, where the world has been pulled over our, our eyes to blind us from the truth. This matrix-like condition may already exist as a kind of part of the, the human psyche, but in self-deception it becomes the norm. Arguably then, any conceptual framework that prioritizes construct over reality or nurture over nature is a form of self-deception. Unfortunately, if you have such a construct uh, or theoretical conceptual framework that does this, people who conform to that framework are not going to know it because they're part of the entire sort of self-deceptive mechanism. With all of this in mind, we may start to get an even clearer sense of how to define self-deception. For starters, the idea of self-deception seems like a contradiction in terms because in self-deception, the deceiver is also the deceived. I am self-deceived. I am the one who is deceiving myself in self-deception. And that seems pretty impossible if you think about it. I mean, take a moment to convince yourself right now that in the car or on the train or in the room that you're in or wherever you are, really try to convince yourself that there is a green elephant right next to you. There it is, munching on peanuts and talking about Plato. 
course, what I'm saying uh, here would make no sense or would actually make sense if you're at a zoo and you're standing next to an elephant that just happens to have been painted green. But for most of you, that's not going to be the case. So think about the green elephant, right? It's right there, right next to you. Are you convinced? Well, of course not. It's nonsense. And yet, in self-deception, this is actually the sort of thing that happens. The deceiver and the deceived are one and the same person. The basic idea is that in self-deception, beliefs are managed, but in such a way that true belief is not the goal. Evolutionary biologist Robert Trivers explains that self-deception occurs when the conscious mind is kept in the dark. True and false information may be simultaneously stored, only with the truth stored in the unconscious mind and falsehood in the conscious. So this is this is a vital idea. Um, this idea because we don't have a kind of unified consciousness, and and so there can be parts of ourselves that are unaware of what is going on in other parts. So I'm going to repeat this idea because I think it's so important. Self-deception occurs when the conscious mind is kept in the dark. True and false information may be simultaneously stored, only with the truth stored in the unconscious mind and the falsehood in the conscious. This shows us quite nicely that the mind is a complex thing. As I've said, we, we are not simple beings with a completely unified consciousness. In both psychoanalysis and in cognitive psychology, there is this idea of a, a kind of split between the conscious mind and the unconscious, although different psychological disciplines frame these ideas a little bit differently. Psychoanalysis and mimetic psychologists in particular po posit that the human subject is not primarily conscious, certainly not autonomous and certainly not primarily rational. All rationality happens actually as a kind of post-rationalization. It's not that consciousness and autonomy and rationality are totally irrelevant considerations, but they're certainly not what dominate the subject. They're simply part of a much bigger, more complex sense of self. The point, then, is that in self-deception, false belief is maintained primarily by an unawareness of the unconscious forces that drive the subject. I use that word forces very deliberately. I think it's crucial for understanding human motivation. I think we maintain beliefs, even false beliefs, because of forces, because of a sense of pressure felt in the psyche. Those forces or sources of pressure may be perceived to be, say, internal, dealing with our values or will, or external, dealing with, say, social expectations and norms and so on. Of course, the internal-external divide is always going to be, in some sense, a construction. As I've pointed out in previous episodes on this po podcast, it's impossible to draw a clear line between what is perceived as being outside us and what is strictly inside what we can say, certainly, is that the internal and external are always in interconnected, even if the line between them is a bit fuzzy or impossible to locate. But we can probably tell whether something leans a little bit uh, towards one side or another, and it's, it certainly can be helpful to identify the primary source of the pressure that we're feeling, especially, especially if we don't want to be self-deceived. The point of this is that Human beings always think and act in accordance with incentives. That is because of a sense of what is in it for them, 
This may seem like a horrible <laughs> reduction, but it, it's still complicated because what is an incentive for one person is not necessarily an incentive for someone else. Still, incentives are what keep beliefs in place. For example, we might want to retain a belief in something because we think it makes us happy. Note the word think. We think it makes us happy. Or perhaps you might keep a belief because you think it creates social harmony. That would obviously be a very strong incentive. You don't necessarily want to be in conflict with other people. If you're a Christian in an environment or a community that leans heavily on the rationality of an imminent frame, chances are that there's a strong element of pressure that would have you want to either abandon your beliefs or modify them significantly to fit the imminent frame. The point is, we are all able to find all kinds of reasons for sticking to what we already believe or for changing beliefs depending on our perception of what we get out of it. If the perception of what we're getting out of it is distorted, then, well, the truth is going to pretty easily get distorted too. In general, incentives are either going to be positive or negative, either the carrot or the stick. But of course, life is complex, and incentives are hardly ever neatly isolated from other incentives. We are easily deceived, that is, self-deceived by a lot of things. We might be self-deceived into believing that certain drugs or vitamins are effective, even if they're not. This is known as the placebo effect, very effectively used in medical testing. Or we might be self-deceived into thinking that we've grown a great deal spiritually, even if we haven't, even if we're in fact worse off than we were previously. It's really alarming how easily people deceive themselves into believing that others are more attracted to them than they really are, or how trustworthy they are, or how good at managing time they are, or how intelligent they are or aren't. People often think that they're more financially secure than they really are too. In fact, we can deceive ourselves on just about anything. Surprisingly, as much as we might want to argue that self-deception is always bad, it's really not. The placebo example I just mentioned is a good case of this. Healing properly is often owed to being self-deceived in some way. As Greg Ten Elsof argues, you could, as a theist, for instance, argue that self-deception may be somewhat God-ordained. Robert Trivers, an evolutionary biologist and atheist, sees self-deception as having evolutionary benefits. He really brilliantly argues um, that survival, propagation of species, improved health, and so on, are often linked to some form of self-deception. It's really good to be reminded of this, even if it's uncomfortable, because it will help us to keep a balanced view. Yes, self-deception can be harmful, but maybe it can also be helpful. Also, and this may be even more surprising to you, we can be self-deceived into believing something true. Let me use Charles Spurgeon's famous and irritating and scary turn-or-burn theology as a case in point. This may not be an example you approve of, but it's very instructive nonetheless. Some hardcore evangelicals like Ray Comfort use this approach, making hell alarmingly absolute and literally real in their theological system. The gist of the idea is pretty obvious. Hell is the core pressure point. I talked about those forces earlier. The pressure point 
It's the, the stick in the carrot stick dialectic. And the result of using this pressure point, maybe, who knows, that someone hears about the so-called gospel as it is presented there and then chooses to convert to Christianity as a result. I'm pretty sure some of you out there converted for this very reason. Well, even many of my more conservative friends would find this approach totally deplorable. They'd say that re the reason to believe should not be out of a fear of hell primarily, which they would see as selfish, but out of a desire for the good, for what is true and good and right. Although you could argue that that's also kind of selfish, but that's a topic for a different day. In any case, the point is that you can unjustifiably believe in things that are true, um, which, which leads you to all sorts of questions about epistemology and justified true belief and all of that, which has been challenged by certain philosophers. So, well, I think you see by now that the topic really is more complicated than it first appears. So here's the gist of how self-deception works, although we're going to need the next episode to unpack some of the vital, finer, subtler details. Self-deception is when we unconsciously manage our beliefs in accordance with particular incentives or pressure points. Thus, the conscious mind is kept in the dark about what the unconscious mind is really up to. As a result of this, the conscious mind goes about its business thinking that it has access to the actual truth of itself or the situation, even when it doesn't. Still, as I said, this is really just the beginning. In the next episode, I'm going to be looking at the nine main categories of self-deception. And, and when you listen to those, you'll start to get a feel for exactly how self-deception functions. So obviously, I really hope you will join me for that. And that's this episode. So um, if you want to support this podcast, you can donate any amount of your choice to the Unorthodoxy podcast Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Cheers.